Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. This is Kim Russo, the director of AGLCA. Today's topic is anchoring, and joining us is John Martin, who is one of our members who's got a lot of sailing experience that I'll let him fill you in on before we really get started. Uh, But as many of you know, even if you're an experienced uh, if you are experienced at anchoring, there's going to be some different types of bottoms you're going to come across on the Great Loop. So we'll talk about that in more detail today. But as always, before I introduce our guest, I do want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes and Associates, Dog River Marina, and John is actually joining us from Dog River today, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, United Yacht Sales of the Carolinas, and Waterway Guide Media. We encourage all of our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And with that out of the way, I'd like to bring in John. John, thanks for joining me today. Sure, my pleasure. Let's start off. um, Tell us a little bit about your sailing experiences and your anchoring background. Well, I've been sailing since I was a boy, and um, over the years, just amassed a lot of mileage. Um, My wife and I just finished sailing around the world on our sailboat. We finished in 2014. We did some 48,000 miles um, on that, so well over 1,000 different anchorages. Um, I'm also an instructor with the American Sailing Association and a Coast Guard captain, but um, I've been, I probably have 20,000 Great Lake and Inland Waterway miles as well. So I've had a lot of opportunity uh, for anchoring different areas around the globe, including Great Lakes like North Channel and um, uh, other deeper anchorages in Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that's probably another great topic for one of these episodes would be to talk a little bit more about your trip around the world because that's an adventure that um, not a lot of loopers have done, but perhaps more should be doing. Um, and home for you is the boat probably, but is is there a kind of a home port that you consider that most of your experience other than your, your extensive trips have been through? Yeah, once I retired from regular work, uh, we moved to a home we had on Beaver Island. That's uh, an island up in northern Lake Michigan, about 32 miles off the mainland from Charlevoix, Michigan. And uh, so that's our permanent home um, when we're not on the boat. Okay. Well, let, let's talk um, first about some of the basics, uh, some of the gear, um, different types of anchors and road, of course, that you would take with you on a Great Loop trip. It's a great topic. First, I find it interesting when you speak with different people about anchors. Some people are kind of emotional about their anchors. Um, personally, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> emotional about it at all. I look at it purely from a more factual standpoint, uh, looking for the you know, piece of metal that's going to do the best job of holding my boat. I mean, you think about it, you've got this little piece of metal on the end of a chain or a rope that's at the bottom uh, that's holding your whole investment. It seems incredible that that little piece actually holds it, but it does. But the what I call the more modern anchors, uh, I guess the first what I would call kind of modern anchor would be the CQR that came out in uh, about 1933 in uh, Great Britain. Before that, you know, it was the typical big uh, fisherman anchors and things like that. But since the first plow came out, um, there's been a series of uh, developments. After the uh, CQR, we had the Danforth, um, which was a groundbreaker in terms of being lightweight and 
profound holding power in the right bottom type. Those came out in about the uh, early 80s, I think right around 1980. Um, and then the claw types came out, uh, like the Bruce in the 70s, uh, or it was about close to the same time as the Danforth. And then um, in the uh, 90s and 96, the Spade came out. That was a French design, which is probably one of the most powerful holding anchors on the market. And also others similar to that, like the Rockno, which came out in 2004. So basically we've gone about three generations. So what I call the new, new anchors now are third generation, like the Rocka or the Spade or the Monson Supremes. Um, so to me, those are your typical choices today. And there's a lot of good studies out. Um, Yachting Monthly in 2006 had a really well done uh, study on the different holding power. Uh, Sail Magazine also had one, Passage Maker, Practical Sailor. And interestingly, most of their studies showed about the same results in terms of holding power of the different anchors. Um, any questions about any of those so far? Um, no, not so far. Let's let's continue kind of down that that path and um, talk a little bit about the holding power of those different options. And um, most loopers um, seem to recommend because it is a very passionate topic. <laughs> you're right, um, an emotional topic that crops up in our discussion forum sometimes. Um, but a lot of the the conventional wisdom seems to say, you know, you need two or more different types. Would you agree with that? And, and which of these types would you take for your great loop trip? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think um, you should always have a plow, uh, and I would, of course, always recommend it, recommend a third-generation plow as your primary anchor. But having a lightweight Danforth or Fortress um, is ideal when you want to take out a stern anchor um, because it's a lot easier to carry and to retrieve. Um, in terms of holding power, I actually, over a course of about six years when we were uh, sailing about the globe, I would dive my anchor the majority of the time uh, for fun and also to make sure I had a good set. And in doing that, I started recording other anchors around me just for fun, and I noticed their drag lines, um, you know, how long it was, if the anchor was set, uh, not set, or set partially. And I amassed quite a database of over 800, 800 uh, anchor marks, and my data turned out to be very, very similar to those reported by uh, Yachting Monthly and Practical Sailor and the others. And um, bottom line is there's just no comparison to the third-generation anchors like the Rock Nut or the Spades. Um, and this will bother a lot of people, but for sure, the worst popular anchor on the market is the CQR in terms of holding. They have by far the longest drag lines. Rarely are they set proper. They're usually on their sides. And, um, you know, at the, remember, this is a 1933 anchor. The big advantage to the CQR is no other anchor hangs better on the bow than the CQR because of the hinge. But it's certainly an inferior anchor when it comes to holding power compared to the newer third-generation types. Um, it doesn't mean that it hasn't been holding boats for many, many years because they do. It's just that there are some that are simply better. So bottom line, if I were buying new at this time, I would buy something like either a Spade or a Rockna or a Monson Supreme, one of those third-generation uh, anchors, and then have a Danforth as my second anchor. Okay. And um, the Rockna or the Spade, um, would you use, use that as your primary anchor regardless of the type of bottom where you're anchoring? Yes, because it has the most diversity. I mean, they're good in almost all bottom types. Um, 
The problem with the lightweight anchors like a Danforth is if there's a real grassy bottom, they'll kind of float over the top and they have difficult time penetrating or if the bottom's quite hard. Um, nothing really works in, in rock, but the the weighted tips of things like the spade um, do a much better job of penetrating um, more dense bottom. But the, the, the third generation plows are by far the best overall for multiple different bottom types. And that's the one I would hang on my bow. And speaking though of what comes off your bow, I do see a lot of people putting second anchors out um, on the bow, which I think is generally a mistake. You rarely would ever put a second anchor out forward because if you do have a problem, it's a real mess trying to retrieve two anchors in the middle of the night. Um, the only time we would ever put two anchors out forward would be in something like hurricane conditions or something where you're really preparing the boat because then if it drags, you're kind of doomed anyway. But as a general rule, you want to rely on one primary anchor on the bow, and I use the other one for the stern only to prevent swinging if the particular anchorage calls for that. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about road as well, because even if you have a great anchor, if you're if you're not um, properly using the road, you could still have problems. So let's talk about your suggestions there. My favorite is all chain, um, but that is expensive and it weighs a lot. Um, when we were cruising on the sailboat, we had all chain. We had 100 meters of all chain. Um, and because the bottom types at sea, especially in the Pacific, you know, there's so much coral uh, that rope road gets uh, chafed pretty easily. But for the loop purposes, for instance, I just put a new windlass on the boat we're refitting now, and I've equipped that with 50 feet of chain and then uh, 200 feet of uh, eight-plate road. So um, that allows for a much lighter weight and less expense, and it will take care of pretty much anything that we need uh, in the loop. Uh, one point, if you do have all chain, though, is remember always use a snubber with some type of uh, nylon line that you can get a little bit of shock absorption from. You'll never leave the... Uh, chain on the windlass by itself without a snubber. With the rope road, it's not a problem because you obviously just cleat that off and you're fine to go without a snubber. But with the chain, you definitely have to have a snubber on there. Okay. That's definitely good advice. As far as the amount of chain to rope road, is there kind of a minimum? Is there a calculation based on the depth? Um, how do we know we've got enough chain if we're not just going to go with your recommendation on the um, 50 feet, I think is what you said? Yeah, and the reason you do want some chain is, again, for chafe, because uh, if there's anything, you know, rock or anything sharp on the bottom, you don't want to cut it through rope road. So it's nice to have at least some of the um, road or the part that's connected to the anchor as um, as chain. Um, in terms of how much you pay out, if the anchorage allows for it, in other words, if there's enough swing room, for overnight, I recommend at least seven to one scope. And um, I think most people know what that means. It's basically just the ratio of uh, depth to how much you have out. So if the depth was 10 feet, you'd have 70 feet of road out. Um, if the conditions are calling for uh, very heavy wind, I might go as much as 10 to 1 if I have enough road and if the uh, depth allows for that. The only downside to putting more scope out is there's more chance of following the road somewhere along its path on the bottom. But um, 
for a safe, quiet, overnight anchorage, you could get away with five to one. But as a general rule, stick with seven to one. And you also have to remember, especially on some of the trawlers that we see on the loop, their bows can be quite high. So you have to calculate the height of that bow in terms of the depth. So, again, say the depth is 10 feet, but your bow stands 15 feet above the water. Now you're calculating for um, a total of 25 feet. So four to one would be 100 feet of road out. Got it. Okay. That's very helpful, too. Let, let's talk a little bit about technique. What are your recommendations on technique for anchoring? Um, really an important part probably uh, as are more important than the anchor type because all the new anchors are pretty good. The first thing to get in one's mind as you approach the anchor is to start thinking about the environment of the anchorage itself. So as you're making way into the anchorage, you want to be looking around and think about um, first, what's the weather forecast? Do we expect a wind shift or no wind shift? Uh, what do, do I anticipate the bottom type? Uh, what's the current? Do I expect the current to shift? And in the Great Loop, the weather is particularly important about rainfall because if you're expecting really heavy rain, some of the anchorages, um, you have to be careful about the uh, dams opening up and dumping a lot more water uh, along your route. So first considering the environment, and then once you move into the anchorage, the next is the concept of swing room and whether or not you're going to be using a stern anchor. So by convention, if there's already a boat anchored in the anchorage, they set the precedence on what technique's being used. So if they, for instance, already have a stern anchor out, you're pretty much obliged to do the same because you need to have the same kind of swing or non-swing. So you see if anybody else is there, if they're free swinging, then you do the same. But just make sure when you start dropping your chain that you know you're going to have enough swing room on a 360-degree arc to miss anything that you need to miss. The next thing, once you've decided uh, where you're going to drop, the technique itself of uh, dropping the anchor is critically important. Uh, so often we see people drop the anchor and back down rather firm, uh, paying out chain, but not as fast as they're backing up. So they're kind of dragging along before the anchor can set. I like to uh, let the boat sit stationary, drop anchor until I know it's hit bottom, and then if there's any current, I just let the current, let the boat slowly start drifting back as I pay out more chain at about the same rate that the boat is reversing. And I put down about, uh, say if I'm planning 7-1 scope, I'll put down 5-1. to one. And I won't even use reverse power if there's a current. I'll simply let it come down, and I'll let the boat sit there for four or five minutes, letting the current slowly set the anchor. Because if you start backing down too quickly, the anchor will want to start skipping. It needs a little bit of time to settle. So if there's no current, just use idle reverse, let the anchor slowly work its way into the bottom, and let it sit there for just a couple of minutes. Then, after you feel you've got a pretty good set, then you can let the rest of your scope out, slowly bring the boat back to the anchor become, anchor chain becomes taut, and then you can add a little bit of power uh, to make sure you're fully set. So the bottom line is not reversing too quickly and giving the anchor time to dig in a bit before you start uh, trying to do the so-called set uh, using reverse. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a good Any technique. Questions? 
Makes perfect sense. Um, and, and you're right, I do see a lot of people adding power to it immediately on dropping that anchor, so that's that's great advice. Um, what other techniques would you suggest? Any other tips that you might be able to share with us? Um, in some of the anchorages in the loop, some of the popular ones like uh, Sumter and um, places like that, uh, boats are also are often uh, rafting. And a mistake I see there is uh, sometimes more than one boat will put an anchor out when they're rafted together. Um, that's kind of a no-no. So basically one boat puts anchor out, the next boat or boats uh, attach to the anchor boat using uh, nice snug spring lines and only having the one boat with the anchor out. Even if you put a stern out, the same one boat puts the stern out and the others simply are hanging on with no anchor set. And it's really important because if the weather were to change significantly or there's any kind of a problem, um, if more than one boat has an anchor out, it becomes a real mess, especially in the middle of the night, trying to get anchors up instead of just the one. Also, if you're rafted and not using a stern anchor, as the boat rotates through the night, those bow anchors will surely uh, surely, uh, twist and uh, get hung up on one another. So just remember, when rafting, one anchor or one boat with its two anchors, one fore, one aft, um, and again, stick with just one bow anchor, not two. Okay. Let's take a break here so I can play a message from one of our sponsors. When we come back, um, let's shift and talk a little bit. You know, Once we're anchored, um, what do we need to check and um, time periods for checking that and also um, what to do when something goes wrong and retrieving a snagged anchor. So we will be back in just a minute. Green Turtle Bay Marina and Resort has consistently been voted a must-stop by loopers. It has earned the coveted five-anchor designation from Quimby's Cruising Guide. This full-service marina features over 450 slips. They are located at mile marker 31.5 on the scenic Cumberland River. Green Turtle Bay is a proud commander sponsor of AGLCA, so join them and find your waterway of life. Welcome back to Great Loop Radio. We are talking today about anchoring with our member, John Martin. Um, John's kind of walked us through the techniques of setting the anchor. John, once the anchor's set, and we're moving on to um, some docktails for the evening, how often do we need to check that? Um, do you rely on anchor alarms, drag alarms? Um, what do you do once you're, once you're settled? If I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to be swinging a lot, especially if a stern anchor's set, I like using shore references um, to check for drag. Um, Alarms work well, too, on your chart plotter or even on things like your iPhone. But I do like, in the first couple of hours, I check it about every 20, 30 minutes just to make sure that there's no drag. Um, After you've been sitting there for two, three, four hours, it's pretty reliable. But at night, in settled weather, um, I simply set an electronic alarm, either with my iPhone, iPad, or chart plotter. Um, you just have to remember, especially in some of the tight anchorages where you're not going to swing a lot, you need to set the alarm set point um, when you drop the anchor. Because if you set it once you've already paid out your road and you are afraid and you don't want to swing 180 degrees the opposite direction, that distance because of a shore, for instance, 
Uh, you'd have to have the alarm set at the set point rather than at your finish point. Um, but I think the modern chart plotters and the, with the differential GPS, I think they're really a pretty reliable source um, of keeping tabs on any dragging. But if I don't have an alarm, I can't help myself. I get up two or three times a night and just go out and take a quick peek. And if it's very dark, I just use a spot to look at the shore and uh, make sure that my references haven't changed significantly. What should you do if you're at anchor and you notice that another boat is dragging? Well, the first thing, I try to raise them on the radio. Um, if that fails, I shine a spotlight at the boat. And if that fails, if I think that there, there's a real chance they're going to be in trouble, I'll jump in my tender and go over and knock on the uh, boat and try to wake them up and uh, get them to go. Um, I've actually had to do that a couple of times, uh, especially in the Mediterranean where there have been a lot of charter boats that drop about two-to-one scope. Um, and the worst part is they're often dragging on top of you. So um, it happens. But if there are other boats in the anchorage, um, if they come in after me, I pay close attention to how they anchor, if their technique is good, if their scope is proper, type of anchor they're using, that gives me a pretty good indication if there's a chance they're going to drag or not. But the experienced boater, when they do a good anchor set and they're using good gear, it helps everybody sleep a little better that night because you know they're just as secure as you are. But uh, those that you see them drop that, you know, it's like the anchor hits the bottom and they're good to go, that one's going to drag. So I I've even lifted my anchor and moved away to a safer location uh, because I'm so sure they're going to drag. But um, the other thing is um, we didn't talk about is if your anchor snags, uh, how do you retrieve that? That's uh, um, that's a tough one because some people um, will put a a line on the head of the anchor on a fender or a buoy so that they can retrieve that and lift the anchor backwards, essentially, to get it unsnagged. The only downside to that is, especially at night, if somebody comes in, they often don't see your mark, and they can get your tether caught up in their propeller or actually unset your anchor by uh, coming over the top of it. So that's the downside, but the upside is it does make it easier to retrieve. Now, I do carry uh, scuba gear, typically, um, in case I do have to dive it. I haven't been doing it in the loop, but um, at sea, in the, especially in the South Pacific around Fiji, where the bottoms are so difficult because of the coral, I kept scuba gear on board, and I did have to dive the anchor a few times to get it uh, unhooked. But if it gets to a point where it's unretrievable, um, you just have to be prepared to let it go. That's why it's always good to have a spare anchor on board because it is possible that it'll get snagged in such a way you can't retrieve it. And if that's the case, you cut it loose. Okay. Thanks. That's extremely helpful. Um, where can people um, find out more about anchoring and techniques? Um, you know, obviously, AGLCA provides some, some live seminar resources, and we can certainly look at adding this topic to some of our rendezvous. But for people who are ready to go and really don't have a lot of experience anchoring, um, are there power squadron or Coast Guard auxiliary classes, or is it just something you have to get out there and practice and make sure that you're in a safe environment to do so? I think practicing is the best, and hooking up with somebody who is pretty experienced. Um, 
there are courses, but often the power squadron and the boater safety don't spend a lot of time on anchoring because it's really not their purpose. Um, things like the American Sailing Association, you know, they have whole courses for, you know, where you get certified for bare boat chartering where a whole day is spent uh, or part of a day on anchoring. Um, uh, U.S. Sailing does the same thing. But they're much longer, more advanced courses. But, you know, it's not rocket science. It's it's fairly simple. It's just, you know, having the right gear, uh, the right scope, and paying attention. And anybody can learn it. It just uh, takes a little time. Also getting to know your boat, which there's no substitute besides time on boat because different boats swing differently based on their uh, air draft, uh, what their undercarriage looks like. So just getting a sense of how you sit at anchor. Um, but there's no substitute for time on task, as they say. But it's nothing to be intimidated by. It's, it's Again, it's not complicated. It's uh, just understanding, uh, you know, what gear to put on your boat. And by the way, I think anybody that has anything over about 34, 35 feet is going to be committed to a windlass. Otherwise, you're going to have a pretty sore back. Um, and right. I prefer up and I, a lot of them, especially the older boats, are have up only. I much prefer a bi-directional windlass where you can uh, have up and down because um, especially if it's a little bit deeper, if you open up the windlass to let it drop free, it uh, it comes out pretty fast. Um, so I like the control of uh, you know slowly lowering it, slowly raising it. In fact, there's a boat that's... Um, dock right behind us here in the in Turner Marine down Dog River that the fella um new to boating but he actually got his leg caught and his road went running out free at night and ended up losing his leg. Uh wow. so it's a frightening it's a frightening deal if uh cautious. So if right. you were gonna buy a new one this I would definitely look for one that has power up and power down. Okay. Great advice. We're going to have to stop there for today. John, thank you so much for joining us to share your knowledge, um, and thanks for your time. Great information. We'll have to have you back to talk about some of your other adventures, like you're sailing around the world, and also the, the refit you're currently working on, because a lot of loopers are looking to do refits or even you know small upgrades to their boat once they get them. So, again, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Um, thank you all for listening. We will be back again next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising. Bye now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.